Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the standard bearer for the Washington State Republican Party calls for the lynching of a black man. We'll get reaction from a key member of the GOP. Plus, the fight over the U.S. Supreme Court gets even more partisan. Can the bench be saved from political madness? And what does it mean for America going forward? The Russian invasion of Ukraine grinds to a halt as the Red Army appears to have been stopped in its tracks. And remembering an icon, the first female Secretary of State. But first, the issue of crime in Seattle, recidivism, and what to do with repeat offenders has been long a topic on this podcast. But now it looks like with a new Seattle city attorney, policies are starting to change. Joining me now is Matt Markovich. He is the political reporter for Fox 13 News here in Seattle. And what exactly is Ann Davison doing? Well, she is now prioritizing the most prolific offenders in the city of Seattle. They eat up most of the court system. What she went through in with her staff is go back into the case records and identify 118 individuals that seem to be picking up a bulk of the time eating up in the court system at the municipal court level. These misdemeanor offenses, basically from the most serious, which is a DUI and assault four, where you're basically punching someone in the face all the way down to minor shoplifting, you know, lifting of just a $5 item. But she went back and figured out that 118 people are responsible for 2,400 crimes in the last five years. And we're talking about nearly 600 trespass complaints, 409 assaults, and 101 weapons violations, all all going back to these 118 individuals. Which begs the question, why in the world are these people still on the street? Well, that... You're going to have to ask judges and the previous administration in terms of the city attorney and even the King County prosecutor that question. It's all about what they ask for a penalty and whether or not the judges are accepting that and maybe being lenient as what the complaints have been. So, but what's happened here, according to Davidson and her office, is that they've made a, a partnership with the Seattle Police Department, the King County prosecutor's office as well as the jail. And that's what's interesting about all this is that the jail is cooperating in this. Over the last two years, the jail has not really been accepting nonviolent offenses. People have been arrested, taken to the jail, but they don't go behind bars or even get it booked. They're released right away if they did shoplifting. Even if some, these some, repeat some, offenders wouldn't get sent to jail? That's right. Even if these repeat offenders. So what these offenders now do is have a basically a front row seat. They get first in the line. If they get picked up for a minor crime, a nonviolent crime, let's say shoplifting, they will go to jail. Then they may be held in jail until their court date. Those cases will get pushed to the front of the line. So the attempt is to start weeding out the people, these 118 people identified as the most prolific people that eat up the most court time and start dealing with them and either keep them in jail or get them on some sort of treatment path for behavioral health or drug abuse or alcohol abuse treatment. So what's been the response from, say, the public defender's office or the Seattle City Council, which could kind of argue have the same sort of opposite view of this? Well, the public defenders are not included in this initiative. We have not heard from the public defender's office about this. As for the city council, they've been mum. They haven't said anything about it as well. I think the I actually think the city council try and be efficient is welcoming an opportunity to cut down on court costs and maybe jail time and deal with these high prolific offenders who obviously are using up uh, city resources. It's all about the punishment with the city council, whether or not the punishment fits the crime. And they want to see more about rehabilitation and behavioral health services, as most people do, whether that's available, because as you know, Jeff, that's very expensive. 
whether that's available to the municipal court to sentence these people to some of these treatment programs or diversion programs like LEAD, uh, that's another question. So how long is it going to take for the system to get through these 118 prolific offenders? Because even if they haven't committed additional crimes, I'm sure a lot of them, if not most or all of them, still have charges pending. That's correct. And what they want to do is twofold. One, if there is a prolific offender and it's, let's say that's a shoplifter who maybe has hit one store like a target 20 times, uh, they can package that up and then make it a, a, a more serious case and send it to the King County prosecutor for felony charges, which obviously pose prison sentences more than a year. The municipal court, the maximum a municipal court judge can sentence somebody is to one year in the county jail. The King County prosecutor can go farther beyond that and send somebody to prison for several years. So there, that's an attempt. That's why the King County prosecutor is involved in this. And as for going through the 118, it's kind of be just, you know, if they commit a crime and now they're on this high priority list, they'll be prosecuted sooner. But again, it's very interesting how they look at it. We've talked about John Lomax. Let's take him, for example. He is the gentleman who is famously seen wheeling out a 70-inch widescreen TV out of the downtown Seattle Target store. And and people try and stop him, but he wheels it out. He's basically shoplifts. He's hit that store 22 times. It's how many times the store is saying he's hit that store. But ironically, John Lomax is not on this list. He doesn't meet the criteria of a prolific offender. A prolific offender has to uh, had 12 or more referrals from the Seattle Police Department to the city attorney's department in the last five years, and have had at least one case referred in the last eight months, even though he's alleged to have robbed the downtown Seattle Target 22 times, he didn't meet the criteria in this report. Have we seen any pushback from outside groups on this new effort from Ann Davison, the Seattle City Attorney? I have not seen anything so far. Again, this is fairly new. And one thing that we have asked the city attorney's office and did not receive was actually the names of the 118 people. So we can follow them ourselves and hold the city attorney accountable, but they are keeping that list quiet and not releasing to the media or the public. Where's the King County prosecutor in all this? Because we know the King County prosecutor's office handles felonies and oftentimes they'll get pled down to misdemeanors and, and then they'll end up getting kicked to municipal court. That's a great question. And that does happen. And these cases can come down to municipal court. And Davidson's office says they'll be prioritized. But at the same time, there is an effort to, like I was saying, consolidate some of these cases into a much bigger case that can be prosecuted at the felony level, where these crimes are much more serious. And then the King County prosecutor would basically prosecute a bunch of misdemeanor cases if they can legally form one big case on this. All right, Matt Markovich, political reporter for Fox 13 News in Seattle. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Anytime, Jeff. Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, in the midst of a congressional campaign, a Washington Republican calls for the lynching of a black man when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, the 2022 campaign already heating up and already you're seeing some rather controversial statements made by some of the candidates in congressional races. Most notably, as of late, the 4th Congressional District, where Dan Newhouse, running for re-election again as a Republican, but has drawn a number of challengers from the right because he voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump the second time around. One of those people that is challenging Dan Newhouse is Lauren Culp. You may remember his name. He was the chief of police for the town of Republic. He also ran for governor unsuccessfully against Jay Inslee. Well, he is called essentially for the lynching of a black man in Seattle. There was a video that was posted 
of a man attacking a woman, knocking her down the stairs at a sound transit facility. Lauren Culp's response on Twitter, get a rope. Joining me now is John Carlson. He's a conservative talk show host for our sister station, KVI, here in Seattle. And I guess, first off, what is your reaction to this? Well, I found out about this reading Danny Westneed's column where he said, where's the outrage to Lauren Culp's remarks? And I got to be honest with you, Jeff, I didn't even know that Lauren Culp had said that. And I think the reason why is Lauren Culp, for most people, is in the rearview mirror. And and therefore, what he says might, you know, get coverage from his base of support. But for a lot of other people, I don't think they knew that he made those remarks. Now, having found out that he made those remarks, when somebody does something outrageous like that, definitely that someone like that should be in prison. Because, again, keep in mind, he not only threw her down the stairs, but then when she recovered herself, he ran back down the stairs and threw her down again. So It's a this disturbing is video, no question. It, uh, the, 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 we couldn't show the video. I mean, the, Como could only show a slice of the video. It was mm-hmm. just awful. And it, it was a completely random attack. And so someone like that belongs in prison, not in jail, in prison. Now... My guess is this guy's probably got a very long rap sheet and probably was in and out of jail for very short periods of time, wasn't getting the message what he was doing was completely unacceptable. Uh, And so he stepped up the severity of his attacks. We've seen this happen with a number of people in Seattle, uh, most notoriously uh, right in front of the King County Courthouse. Uh, Do I want him held accountable? Yes. At the same time, uh, I want him held accountable by a court of law, sentenced by a judge, and sent to prison. The whole idea of, you know, vigilante justice is, first of all, doesn't solve a problem. It's not a real solution. And I don't think it makes Lauren Culp look good, especially given the fact that he was a lawman. And let me go ahead and just jump in here, just so we're not misquoting Lauren Culp. Here is exactly what he wrote on Twitter, posting a video of this incident. Again, a horrific video. Uh, I think most people would agree with you, John, that this person belongs in prison. Lauren Culp tweets, get a rope, not only for the low-life scumbag who did this, but for the worthless judges and prosecutors who continually let this happen by turning violent criminals back out only to make new victims. No rope, firing squad, and I'll volunteer for it. Now, we've covered the issue of recidivism and criminals not being held accountable endlessly on this podcast, but that tweet by Lauren Culp crosses a line. Well, no, I mean, uh, someone who sees something outrageous like that, it's something, you you know, you blurt out, you know, watching at the bar and you see something like that. And I mean, the person next to you saying something like that, that's what you expect. Not, not uh, somebody who is taking the time to write this out. Uh, with a background in law enforcement. Again, I don't, I don't know why he thinks this makes him look good. I do want to make clear also, because I don't think we've done that yet, Jeff, the woman that he threw down the stairs was badly injured. She has broken bones. Luckily, among uh, them a broken clavicle, broken collarbone, but she, she is on the mend and getting better. She was not killed. Um, and thank God for it. But we live in an era where people are saying things for shock value. And I think we've got to get beyond that. 
you have to show when you're running for Congress, which is what Lauren is doing now out in central Washington in the fourth district against the incumbent Republican Dan Newhouse, you have to show you're going to elevate the place that you're seeking to serve in. And I don't think that does it too well. If you've been a candidate before, you've advised candidates before, what would you say to Lauren Culp after reading this tweet if if you're running his campaign? What you say is the next time you have the urge to say something, stop and count to 10 and don't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Look, people might have momentary urges to vent all the time, but mature people don't do stuff like that. And you just shake your head and say, I don't know what he thought he was accomplishing there. It's uh, it's nothing that's going to help him. Well, clearly, and- we're talking about this. I mean, this has been a, a, a thing in the press. He, he can't be doing the Republican Party any favors when he was essentially the standard bearer for the last couple of years for the Washington State GOP and, and now running for Congress, he does this. Yeah, I think that Lauren Culp is struggling in his campaign for Congress, even with uh, President Trump's endorsement. He's having trouble gaining momentum. He's having trouble getting traction in the most conservative district in the state, arguably. And He's having trouble raising a decent amount of money. And so now he's throwing stuff out for shock value. And that doesn't look like confidence. That kind of looks like someone who's down on points and getting desperate. Let's put it this way. The Republicans are going to win a lot of seats in Congress and in the legislature this year. But if they want to know how to screw it up, talk like Lauren Culp did last week. People don't want to vote for someone, even if they agree with them, who are going to embarrass them. That is a decent theory when it comes to American politics. But we also saw Donald Trump get elected and and he used that same playbook. Well, I think that what President Trump brought, though, is people knew him. People had a sense that this is someone I know. He was on people's television screens for, what, 14 seasons. Uh, He was ubiquitous, you know, public figure. As much as I agree with Donald Trump's positions... I think that sometimes he stepped on his own momentum uh, with some of these tweets and some of these offhand remarks and the name calling and whatnot. And I also think that's one reason Joe Biden won was because Joe Biden said, we're not going to do that. So you think that playbook's going to fail for Lauren Culp? Yep. What do you expect to see in the 4th District? I, I understand why a lot of Republicans are angry at Dan Newhouse for voting to impeach Donald Trump literally as he was walking out the door. But politics is a package deal. You have to look at the entire candidate. Dan Newhouse has been a very respected and very effective voice for central and eastern Washington. Uh, Lauren Culp ran on anger. Some of that anger was well-placed. He got more votes than any Republican has gotten before in his race against Jay Inslee. But you've got to build on that with something positive. I mean, people, frankly, in both parties, I think, Jeff, they want hope. They're looking for solutions. They're looking for change that will make things better. And I don't think name-calling get you very far in that direction. All right, John Carlson, talk show host for our sister station, KVI. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Always fun. Thanks very much, Jeff. Now, we reached out to Lauren Culp to give him an opportunity to come on this show and talk about his tweet. 
His campaign has not responded. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, politics has muddied the reputation of the U.S. Supreme Court just as the fight to confirm a new justice heats up when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Elisa Jaffe. Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell will vote no on the confirmation of Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. I went into the Senate's process with an open mind. But after studying the nominee's record and watching her performance this week, I cannot and will not support Judge Jackson. The minority leader accused her of repeatedly deflecting basic questions about her judicial philosophy, sidestepping questions about specific rulings. McConnell called it an endless circle of evasion, a very different view from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the other side of the aisle. A handful of members on the other side, not all, just a handful, tried to smear the judge with misleading and downright false accusations. But once again, the judge remained poised, thoughtful, and strong in her answers. ABC's Derek Dennis joining us on the Northwest Newsline with more on today's proceedings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. She didn't have to answer any questions today, but what did happen? The Senate Judiciary Committee is meeting behind doors, going over the testimony she gave over the last three days and also her, her background check information, all part of the procedure here. What Mitch McConnell is getting at, the Senate Minority Leader, uh, in saying he's not going to vote for her, is the fact that she was evasive, but she was evasive for reasons, uh, for traditional reasons. It is by design that nominees for the Supreme Court don't weigh in on hot button issues that might come before the court at a later date if there were, were to be a confirmation uh, of her nomination. And so and so that is why uh, she didn't give a lot of answers, uh, even on some of the toughest questions she faced, which were was on, you know, abortion and court packing. And then this entire line of questioning about her judicial record, especially on sentencing child pornography to lighter sentences than what the federal guidelines allowed. She gave a lot of answers on that, but primarily said she worked within the guidelines that were set by Congress. She used her judicial discretion and also took these cases very seriously as a judge and as a mom. Uh, There were many Democrats who praised her for being forthright, cool and calm under fire, and also, you know, showing her experience in handling these cases. Now, was it a surprise that McConnell is saying he's going to vote the way he is going to vote? He's saying he was open. Not a surprise. I mean, these considerations for Katanji Brown-Jackson were expected to fall along party lines. Uh, it is expected that the Democrats will vote for her. They have the votes to confirm her and that Republicans would vote against her. The hope, according to President Biden, was to get bipartisan support. But the fact of the matter is the Democrats don't need it. Do we see any Democrats who have said anything against her? There have been Democrats who said that they are keeping an open mind, that they are considering all that what she said. So there have been some who haven't given her an immediate thumbs up, an immediate I will vote for her. There's some who are sort of hedging and, and keeping their their decision close to the vest. Obviously, there are a number of Republicans who've indicated right off the bat that they wouldn't vote for her. And, and so we'll see what the breakdown is. Democrats uh, are pushing to have her confirmed before Easter with an, an initial vote 
scheduled on April 4th by the committee and then a full vote and then a full vote sometime before Easter break. ABC's Derek Dennis. Thanks, Derek. And that's Elisa Jaffe. Meanwhile, a new poll shows a majority of Americans want to see Kentonji Brown Jackson on the high court. We get that part of the story from Brian Calvert. According to a Gallup poll released this week, 58 percent of Americans say Ketanji Brown Jackson should be confirmed as a new justice. It puts her in a tie for the most public support ever for a Supreme Court nominee. Break the numbers down further and the judge has the support of 88 percent of Democrats, 55 percent of independents and 31 percent of Republicans. Women of color here in Washington are among the most ardent supporters. It's taken far too long for a black woman to be seriously considered um, and nominated for this position. So it definitely, I think, sends a strong message that diversity matters and representation matters. Attorney Natasha Hill says there still isn't a lot of representation of brown skin in court. For little girls, you know, all across the country, like myself, um, who can see themselves now in that position, and it doesn't feel like such an obstacle to overcome. And I think that she has proven that if you put the work in, um, She's well-respected. That's Gloria Ochoa Bruck. She's the first Latina judge ever elected in Spokane County. She tells our news partner, KXLY. It's been proven uh, time and time again that if you do have participation and discussion in, in groups that come from different backgrounds, have different perspectives, have different experiences, we get better outcomes. You know, breaking um, another glass ceiling and being another first for black women um, definitely is going to open the doors for women across our country and people to see um, women who look like her, women who look like me, um, rightfully in those positions, uh, just like everyone else in our country should be able to see themselves in those positions. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. And we have to take another quick break, but still to come, remembering Madeline Albright when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, the nation lost a storied diplomat this past week. Madeleine Albright, the first female Secretary of State under the second Clinton administration, died at the age of 84. We figured we'd take a look back at her career and how she influenced American foreign policy. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And kind of that's the first thing on her resume, first thing on her epitaph, first female Secretary of State. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Albright uh, eventually saw two more women become Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, Condoleezza Rice. And uh, she told C-SPAN in an interview a number of years ago that for a lot of women, it's the norm. She goes, my youngest granddaughter, when she turned seven, said to her mother, so what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? It seems only girls are Secretary of State. (laughs) But of course, in her lifetime, that's all she had seen before that. No one had seen a a woman Secretary of State in the United States, so she broke that glass ceiling and, uh, and really had an extraordinary career She's she was only four feet ten tall, but boy, did she stand out in the crowd. And not only that, but internationally. And one of the things that's interesting is she has a lot to do with why Vladimir Putin launched this invasion in Ukraine. Remember back when George H.W. Bush was leaving office, the Cold War was literally ending. The Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union fell apart. And then Bill Clinton came into office. And when he came into office, the U.S. had to learn how to deal with a new broken up Soviet Union, Russian and all these 
satellite states that were earning yearning for independence and and uh, freedom and many of them wanted to be democratic and so she pushed very hard to expand nato and make a number of former soviet uh, satellite countries part of nato she was also uh, confronted with the deadly targeting of ethnic albanians in kosovo uh airstrikes back in 1999 she also helped bring hungary poland and the czech republic into nato these are all things that have enraged Vladimir Putin over the years to the point where he goes, you know what, I want these countries back and I'm going to start with Ukraine. Now, Ukraine, of course, was not in NATO, but there was talk of it joining there. One of the excuses he made up for saying, well, Ukraine's a threat to us. Uh, but a lot of this goes all the way back to Madeleine Albright and her strong leadership in trying to state, strengthen NATO way back in the uh, late 1990s. Now, she wasn't even expecting to get the job of Secretary of State. In fact, we, we have an audio clip here from Elisa Jaffe on Northwest Afternoon several years ago when she interviewed Madeleine Albright. Well, you have to understand that I didn't believe it was going to happen. Uh-huh. And the day before, I'd gotten a call from Erskine Bowles, who was President Clinton's chief of staff, and he said, if the president were to call you tomorrow, would you take the call? And if he were to ask you <laughs> to be his Secretary of State, would you say yes? And I thought, what idiot would say no to either of those questions? Well, did you think it was a joke? Well, I, no, I kept thinking, you know, this must be something wrong here. But anyway, I rushed to Washington, and I thought, well, he'll call me first thing in the morning. But the truth is, Bill Clinton didn't get up real early in the morning. And so I got uh, sat there in my pink bathrobe <laughs> waiting for the phone call. And finally, at 9.47, the White House operator called and said, hold for the president. And then I held, and there was some music. And finally, he came on, and he said, will you be my secretary of state? And at that point, I believed it. Well, it wasn't just her term as secretary of state. I mean, she had a, a long history of, of being a diplomat. She worked on the National Security Council for a while. Her father was a diplomat. So this was in her blood. It was in her blood. She uh, was born in Czechoslovakia and knew firsthand what it was like to live under fascism. First under the occupation of Germany and Adolf Hitler, and then when uh, the Soviets moved in and pushed Germany out under Stalin and uh, the fascist regime there. It was uh, after those two circumstances, when she was about 11 or 12, her family fled to the United States. She was an immigrant, came to the United States, got an incredible education. Her family survived and thrived here. She ended up becoming a professor at Georgetown, uh, worked for Hillary Clinton, and eventually was chosen uh, to represent the U.S. at the U.N. and uh, around the world as the top diplomat here. You know, she was famous for wearing these pins. Uh, the very first one was uh, this uh, eagle pin. And uh, then she wore all kinds of pins, animals and birds and butterflies. And she famously said that you know, when she was having a good day, she wore the butterflies and, and flower pins. And when she was having a bad day, she wore carnivorous animals on her shirt, sometimes a, a wolf. And on that subject, we have another clip of hers talking about those pins. So do they give you those pins with the eagles on them, or do you go out and buy a bunch of those? I don't know. Because you've got them all over the place. I mean, I see them on necklaces, on the lapel. Well, I, I'm big on that. But what happened was, that especially the eagle pin that I wore on the cover of my book, right. and also when I got sworn in, because I did not believe I'd be secretary, I went I, to this jewelry store, and there was this ex exquisite and expensive pin, and I thought to myself, if I get to be secretary of state, I will buy it for myself. 
because that's how I thought how ridiculous the concept was that this would happen. <laughs> so when I did become secretary, I went and bought it, and I love it, but what happened was that it had a really complicated clasp on it, and I'm there holding up my hand, and one hand on the Bible, and all of a sudden I see this pin is undone, and I thought, concentrate on swearing allegiance, <laughs> not on whether this pin is going to fall on the Bible. So after all that, it wasn't even really visible during the ceremony. At one time, uh, when she was berating Saddam Hussein at the UN, she wore a snake on her shirt, not on her uh, blouse, I guess, or, or jacket. And and a photographer said, why are you wearing that snake pin? She goes, oh, Saddam Hussein called me a venomous snake or something. And so I thought, well, I might as well say, well, if that's what you think, here it is. And so she would have a lot of fun with that. And by the way, a friend of mine, Anne Hand, was the person who designed that pin. She was a, a Washington, D.C. designer. And it became so popular, they could not keep it in stock. Uh, and made Anne Hand an international jewelry celebrity, which she is forever grateful. And she became very good friends with her. And I uh, actually, on, on ABC's Perspective this week, I did a longer piece on her and her relationship to her and how these pins um, were actually used diplomatically around the world. But she was not without controversy, particularly in her later years during the 2016 Democratic presidential primary. The quote, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support each other. Wow, that was uh, directed towards some of the Bernie Sanders supporters. I mean, she she had a sharp tongue, too. Yeah, she gets some flag for that here. But, you know, for the most part, this is a woman who supported other women. She knew she was blazing a trail. She wanted to help other people blaze the tra trail, too. I don't think she necessarily meant that to be a diss of Bernie Sanders, more than she was supporting Hillary Clinton, and certainly the Clinton family who had done so much for her in her career. What do you think Madeleine Albright's legacy will be? Well, certainly strengthening NATO. I think that was uh, the number one thing. And also, uh, we talked about Kosovo and Bosnia. She pushed very hard to strike back at the, at the ethnic cleansing that was there because she knew what that was like as a child growing up there. And both were very successful uh, in terms of strengthening security in Europe, in a place that she had come from and knew the dangers of fascism and uh, not having a strong defense against fascists. So I think that may be her strongest legacy in the world in terms of how people remember her and what she pushed very hard to do. And you can't help but wonder how she might handle or what she might think of the current situation in Ukraine. I'm sure she'd be heartbroken. I know she's been, she had been very sick for quite some time uh, with cancer, so I don't know that she's weighed in on a lot of this publicly before this. But it, it is sad that so many years after what was the near destruction of most of Europe, back in the 1940s under Hitler, we're seeing a similar threat right now from a, a despot in the Soviet Union. Well, not the Soviet Union. He'd like it to be the Soviet Union again, but in Russia, from Vladimir Putin, who is indiscriminately bombing unarmed civilians. Tens of thousands have died, we're told. And uh, it is just heartbreaking to see this here. The only difference today is that the United States can't simply carpet bomb Russia to get this to stop because Russia has a nuclear weapon and it seems to have a madman at this point who may be willing to use it. All right, ABC's Andy Field, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, Russia may have to reevaluate its invasion of Ukraine after the Red Army is pushed back when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pozula. 
Here's Manda Factor. The Russian army is losing thousands of soldiers and apparently has little will to fight. Let's go to our Northwest Newsline now. ABC News crime and terrorism analyst Brad Garrett is with us. Uh, Brad, a lot of experts are saying this might be the beginning of the end of Vladimir Putin. Do you agree? It's hard not to think otherwise. And the reason why is you think about what he has done. He's basically trashed what was left of Russia's economy, which is going to take it years to recover. He's basically shut Russia off to the rest of the world, which is really devastating because countries today, developed countries, really can't exist or grow without connections to the outer world. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so I think the short answer is, will the people in power, in the military, in the intelligence community in Russia, and the Politburo slice Kremlin fill-in-the-blank politicians finally decide at some point we just have to deal with him. I don't know. I mean, it's I'm shocked they've actually let it go on this long. But I think it also goes to show what ultimate power he he has. And he does fit the, the definition of an autocrat that basically nobody tells him what to do. And we all get in trouble if we don't have people telling us what we should and shouldn't do sometimes. What if Vladimir Putin sees this as the beginning of the end and now feels he's got nothing to lose? Maybe that. But certainly he's a guy, based on his history, that doesn't like to back down. And so will he, as he continues to lose on the ground, um, will he go to biological, chemical, and or nuclear attacks, uh, which could conceivably include blowing up a nuclear power plant in Ukraine? I mean, those are all just awful scenarios. But And I assume at that point he then will literally cross a huge red line that will cause NATO and us to take him on. Thanks for sharing your thoughts as this continues to unfold, Brad. ABC News crime and terrorism analyst Brad Garrett. And that's Manda Factor. But where is NATO in all of this? That part of the story from Elisa Jaffe. President Biden says the U.S. and Europe are united in maintaining a sustained response against Russia in Ukraine. And today he said our country plans to accept 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. This is not something that Poland or Romania or Germany should carry on their own. This is an international responsibility. The United States is a leader, one of the leaders in the international community, has an obligation to be engaged. With more on Biden's meeting with NATO and European leaders today, we are joined by ABC's Karen Travers. What else did he say about accepting refugees? Are they going to speed up the process to make it easier for them, Karen? It's not clear that that will happen. But the president said that when he travels to Poland over the next two days, that he plans on trying to see some of those people who had left their homes to escape violence. My colleague Cecilia Vega asked him if that visit would change his mind about how the U.S. responds to Russia's ongoing attacks in Ukraine. And the president said no, but he did say it would reinforce his commitment to having the U.S. play a major role in giving humanitarian assistance for inside of Ukraine and outside for those countries in Eastern Europe that are accepting refugees. And Poland, where he'll travel tomorrow, they've taken in more than two million Ukrainians since this began. How much humanitarian aid did he promise? Yeah, a billion dollars today. Uh, that was the commitment from the administration bringing the total to about $1.4 billion. You know, the president has said there will be more to come because that big spending bill the president signed
signed a few weeks back that funds the government through September. That has several billion dollars just specifically for this issue. So the president said that will be coming. They understand that this is something that is an immediate need. I mean, there's significant issues with water, medical supplies, things like that. But this is going to be an ongoing process. And there might be a significant need for that type of help for many months to come. And one of the touchy subjects, you have to wonder how President Putin handled this one. He said that Russia Mm -hmm. should be removed from the G20. He did. The president says that he believes because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that Russia should be removed from the G20, which is the collection of the world's largest economies. You know, you'll recall that the G7 used to be the G8, but Russia was kicked out of that after the invasion of Crimea. The president today acknowledged it's not up to him, but it is up to the full G20 to make that decision. But he said today in his conversations with world leaders that he suggested that Ukraine then should be able to attend the G20 meetings, allow them to come in and observe. He spoke of unity, but what about countries, Turkey being one of them, that still lets Russian oligarchs visit there? Did they talk about getting them to also impose sanctions? That explicitly did not come up, but I think the big message from the president today, you know, he said Putin was banking on NATO and the West, you know, the United States and European allies, banking on them being split. He said based on the conversations he had with him in December and early January, that was his perception. But he said today that NATO has never been more united than it is right now. What about China? China understands mm-hmm. that uh, its economic future is much more closely tied to the West uh, than it is to Russia. Yeah, he says he's told China's president that mm-hmm. supporting the invasion would hurt their trade relations with the U.S. And, and Europe. What else did they say today about this? Yeah, I thought that was a key line there from the president, because he said that when he had that phone conversation with uh, China's President Xi last week, he says he didn't make any threats, but that he made it very clear that if she were to help Russia uh, with the invasion, whether through military assistance or economic assistance because of the sanctions that are really having a devastating impact on the Russian economy. The president said, well, he didn't make threats. He made it clear that China would put itself in significant jeopardy if it did move forward with that help that Russia has very clearly said it wants. The president pointed out the number of American and foreign companies that have left Russia in recent weeks because of what the president says is their barbaric behavior. Karen Travers joining us from NATO in Belgium. Thank you, Karen. And that's Elisa Jaffe, and that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelet. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.